This is Guns and Butter. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, George Lakoff. Today's show, The Political Mind. George Lakoff is currently Professor of Cognitive Science and Linguistics at the University of California at Berkeley and is a founding senior fellow at the Rockridge Institute. His expertise is in cognitive linguistics, the scientific study of the nature of thought and its expression in language. Since the mid-1980s, he has been applying cognitive linguistics to the study of politics, especially the framing of public political debate. He is co-director with Jerome Feldman of the Neural Theory of Language Project at the International Computer Science Institute at Berkeley. His most recent book is The Political Mind, Why You Can't Understand 21st Century Politics with an 18th Century Brain. Today's program is from a presentation given in July 2008 in Austin, Texas. George Lakoff. I want to tell you a little bit about this book as opposed to the previous ones. I've been assuming results about the brain and the mind in previous books, but in this book I actually go through them in detail. And don't get scared off by that. Uh, It's written for human beings to understand. It starts out with a view of what reason is. And this view of reason comes from the Enlightenment, which is where our democracy comes from. Uh, Our view of government uh, as having to do with things like equality and uh, human rights and um, fairness, uh, all of those values, freedom, those great values came out of the Enlightenment along with a view of the mind that said what made us human beings is reason. We all have reason equally, because we're equally human. And therefore, we can govern ourselves. We don't have to ask uh, nobles or kings or popes to govern us. Um, We can do it ourselves because we are rational. That is the basic idea, and it's a very, very important, crucial idea. So that is where we start. Uh, Along with this came a view of rationality, uh, largely uh, taken from René Descartes, which has become a common view of rationality. And at the time, it was extremely important because it overcame views of uh, thought in terms of superstitious thinking and crucial for the 17th and 18th centuries. But now it's become a popular view of reason, and it's come into our politics, into our media, and it goes like this. It says all reason is conscious, that it's dispassionate, that emotion gets in the way of reason, that reason can fit the world in itself directly. And not only can it fit itself, fit the world directly, but it's logical. So if you know the facts, you will reason to the right conclusion. And that everybody reasons equally well. And therefore, uh, you know, all we have to do is tell people the facts, we'll reason to the right conclusion. And language can fit the world directly because reason fits the world directly. In addition to that, it says reason is uh, based on self-interest. That's its purpose. Its purpose is to uh, further our self-interests and that it is abstract. It's not physical. It turns out that these are all false, every single one. 
That's what's been discovered in the last 30 years in neuroscience and cognitive science. So let me go through them bit by bit and then talk a little bit about what it says about politics. Uh, first, most reason, the usual estimate is around 98%, is unconscious. It's what our brain is doing when we're busy being conscious. Uh, it's doing a lot, and it's shaping our conscious thought. Second, what about whether reason is abstract? It turns out it isn't. It's physical. You think with your brains. Now, you don't have a choice about this. Uh, you might think certain politicians think with certain other parts of their anatomy. Uh, but, uh, you know, even they think with their brains. Now, this is not a trivial statement because brains are set up to run bodies. So we're thinking with a brain that is set up to run a body, and a brain is not a general-purpose reasoning device. It has very, very special computational requirements, and we now know what they are. I've been working for 20 years uh, with Jerry Feldman at the uh, uh, International Computer Science Institute at Berkeley. Uh, Jerry is uh, one of the people who figured out how neural computation works, and uh, we understand a lot about how the brain works computationally. It's not at all like a, a general computer. It's very, very different. And it's structured to run a body. And the question is, how can we think that way? Now, what about the idea that reason is dispassionate? That, it, that emotion gets in the way. And sometimes it does. But it's been discovered by uh, people like Antonio Damasio, who wrote Descartes' Error some years back, that, in fact, you have to have emotion to be rational. And you can see why very simply. Uh, consider what would happen if you got a stroke or a brain injury that kept you from feeling emotion or feeling any emotion in anybody else. Um, what would it be like? Think of this. You have no emotion. Okay? You don't know what anyone else feels. How would you know what to want? How would you know what to want even? Because, you know, would you like it or not? Well, like and not like, doesn't matter. You can't tell the difference. And what about other people? Would they like you, hate you? You couldn't tell. How could you make a decision? And the answer is you can't. That's what happens when people have such strokes or brain injuries. They cannot function rationally. So it, it turns out that the ideal of Mr. Spock in Star Trek is not true. You know, the idea that if you don't feel any emotion, you will be super rational just is false. Now, why is this? The reason is a very deep reason. Uh, those folks who are uh, working out the details of our neural circuitry have observed certain important things about the brain. Uh, we have two major neural pathways for emotion, a positive and a negative pathway. And the the positive pathway, which uh, uses the neurotransmitter dopamine, and it's for uh, emotions like joy, satisfaction, uh, awe. The negative one uses a norepinephrine as its neurotransmitter, and it's for feelings like anger, fear, disgust, anxiety. And the pathways that go from there go out through other upper parts of the brain to regions that have to do with semantic content. And they form circuits that are integrated circuits. 
And the result is that we think in terms of melodrama. We think in terms of cultural narratives that have both semantic content and emotion together, inseparable. Very simple examples. Take any case that you can. Imagine any case of a hero narrative. What happens in it? You have a villain who does something unspeakable to a victim. How do you feel? Angry. The hero encounters the villain. You don't know who's going to win. How do you feel? Anxious, fearful. The hero wins. You feel joyful, satisfied. How many times a week do you see TV shows with this structure? <laughs> many, many times. How many foreign policies have you encountered like this? Uh, not only that, how many um, campaign biographies? <laughs> In short, uh, this is a cultural narrative structure, and it is one of hundreds. We have lots of cultural narratives in which we understand you know, things of this sort, like the rags to riches narrative, where you identify with somebody who's poor, who's trying to make it, they work hard, they keep falling back, they have problems, you know, you feel terrible for them, finally they make it, you feel great and joyous, so on. Uh, you find this in every campaign biography, some sort of narrative. So you get John McCain, he's got a hero narrative. You get Barack Obama, there's a form of the rags to riches narrative. You get Hillary Clinton, there's a glass ceiling narrative. And they have semantic content, and they're very emotional. Okay. Now, that is why we have to have emotion in order to reason, because we live those narratives. We don't just understand other people in terms of it. They're not just there for TV shows. We live out our own narratives. There are other narratives we try to avoid living out, uh, very important to avoid living out certain narratives. And we understand our friends, our relatives, etc., as living out other narratives, and that's how we interact with them. So it's very crucial to see this. Now, why does this matter for enlightenment reason? Because it says we don't understand the world just in itself. We have to understand people through other narratives and of this sort. In addition, we understand people through frames and metaphors. And let me tell you a little bit about that. Uh, back in the early 1970s, uh, there were two remarkable studies from two great scholars uh, that came out. The first was a book called Frame Analysis by Irving Goffman, one of our great sociologists. Uh, Irving, again, he was a friend. <laughs> he was one of these guys you were a little bit queasy around because he was always observing everybody. Uh, in addition to that, the way he did his sociology was to go out and work in the world. He wrote a book on asylums. He worked in an insane asylum. He wrote a book on Las Vegas. He became a croupier. Right? He knew what he was writing about because he experienced it. And after uh, many years of this, he wrote a book summarizing his observations called Frame Analysis where he said, we understand institutions in general in terms of structures called frames. And they are very simple, and they have two parts. The first is a set of roles or frame elements, or roles, characters that people play. For example, take a hospital. There are doctors, nurses, uh, orderlies, patients, receptionists. They're playing certain roles. 
There are places, operating rooms, reception desks. There are instruments, scalpels, defibrillators. They're all part of what is activated when you say hospital. In addition to that, there are certain things that happen in a hospital. You know that surgeons operate on patients in operating rooms with instruments like scalpels. We all know this. It's part of our frame for a hospital. And how do we know what the boundaries of this frame are? We do. We know it when the frame is broken. And Goffman writes about the breaking of frames. So, for example, you walk into a hospital to visit a friend. Okay? You go into the reception desk. A doctor is lying on the reception desk. They hand you a scalpel, say you're operating on the doctor. The frame is broken. That's not what's supposed to happen. <laughs> right? You know this. Right? That's what a frame is about. A year later, Charles Fillmore, one of our greatest linguists, figured out that all words are defined relative to frames. Words like surgeon and scalpel and operating room define relative to frames of this sort. Uh, a word like menu or waiter is defined relative to a, wa a restaurant frame and so on. So frames are ordinary. They're the structures we think in terms of. There's nothing more ordinary than a frame. And every time you utter a word, some sort of frame is being activated unconsciously in your mind. But not just your mind in your brain, because frames are physical. And um, in our lab, uh, Jerry Feldman and his students have figured out the kinds of neural computation needed to characterize frames. They're really simple. And they arise naturally, and there's you know, a reason why we, we think in terms of structures of this sort. You're listening to George Lakoff. Today's show, The Political Mind. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, uh, what about metaphor? It turns out that with metaphor, uh, one more thing, what Fillmore discovered is every single word is defined with respect to a frame. So if you say a word at all, anything, it evokes a frame. And that is why I wrote a book called Don't Think of an Elephant. Because even if you negate the frame, the frame is activated. Because I said the word elephant. Okay? Very important, remember that. Metaphors are interesting. Uh, we found out back in the late 1970s that metaphor is not just a matter of language, but a matter of thought. We think metaphorically. And in the 1980s, we discovered something rather remarkable, that there was a set of metaphors that occurred in language after language after language. We didn't understand why, but we sort of took note of them, uh, and uh, we called them primary metaphors. And they were metaphors that arose when you decomposed complex metaphors into their parts, and we found ways to decompose them. Uh, but we still had no idea why they showed up in language after language or why they existed at all. Then, uh, about 10 years ago, um, one of the great graduate students at Berkeley, Berkeley is famous for its graduate students more than its faculty. Um, the graduate students do a remarkable amount of the work. Uh, Srini Narayanan discovered with neural computation how to characterize how metaphors were characterized in terms of the brain, in terms of the way the brain computed. With that came along a theory of metaphor learning. And it explained all these facts. And it explained how primary metaphors were learned. And let me give you an example. Let's take a couple of cases. More is up and less is down. Prices rise, 
price of gas is going through the roof. It's not literally going through the roof. That's a metaphor, right? Uh, there are warm people and cold people, you know. So she's very warm. He's been cold to me. That doesn't mean they're physically cold. It means they are, um, you know, um, not affectionate. Now, how do we get these metaphors? How does this happen? Well, it turns out, think for a minute about a child watching a parent pouring water into a glass every day or pouring, you know, a formula into a bottle. Every single time, the level goes up. You know, you pour more water in, the level goes up. You pile more stuff on the desk, the level goes up. There's a correlation between verticality and quantity. Same thing, sort of thing happens with um, affection. You're held affectionately by your parents as a child. You feel affection and physical warmth, temperature. Okay? Now, what's happening in the brain is what's crucial here. In the case of more is up, two parts of the brain are activated, one for quantity, one for verticality, in different parts of the brain. The same thing happens with affection and warmth. Two parts of the brain are activated in different parts of the brain, and they're activated over and over and over together. What does that mean? Two parts of the brain become active. Boom. They're active. Now, each neuron is connected to 10,000 other neurons, and when a part of the brain is repeatedly active, the synapses get stronger, and the connections, you wind up getting what is called spreading activation along existing pathways. So the activation spreads, and it happens again. The connections get stronger, spreads further, spreads further, spreads further, until the shortest path is formed, and you get a circuit. That circuit is the metaphor, more is up. That circuit is the metaphor, affection is warmth. And so on for hundreds of such cases, which we have been mapping out. Primary metaphors are physical. Now, these are only the primary ones, and these occur in language after language after language, because those experiences occur in language after language after language. Not all, all the time. It turns out that about affection being warmth, in um, equatorial India, uh, warmth is annoyance. There's a reason for this. But aside from that, uh, what you have is a system of metaphors that structures how you think, and then they combine by what is called neural binding to form complex metaphors. They combine with frames to get complex ways of thinking. Okay. Why is this important? Because that is how we normally think. We learn these metaphors by the time we're six or seven, because just by living in the world, without the language, we just function, and the metaphors are there in our brains unconsciously, shaping how we think. And then the language follows after that. Now, what that says is our reason, we reason metaphorically, that is, metaphors are ways of reasoning about one thing in terms of another, reasoning about prices in terms of heights and so on. Uh, we reason uh, not just in terms of the way the world is in itself, but in terms of frames, metaphors, and narratives. That is, our reason doesn't just fit the world by itself. And the form of reason isn't just mathematical logic. It is the logic of narratives, the logic of metaphors, and the logic of frames. 
They're very different, and some of them are different from culture to culture or subculture to subculture. Okay, so that's part of this story. Let me get one more part. Is the major purpose and the only major purpose of reason to pursue our self-interest? The answer is no. And we learned something very important about this in a remarkable experiment in 1996. Uh, this came about in Parma, Italy, the home of Parmesan cheese and prosciutto di Parma. An equally important uh, discovery was made there in 1996. Uh, what they found is that we all, both monkeys, they used macaque monkeys at first, and people, have what are called mirror neurons, M-I-R-R-O-R. -R and let me explain briefly what that is. We have neurons that fire when we either perform an action, a complex action, such as drinking some water. You know, those neurons are firing. And in your brains, the same neurons would be firing because you saw me drink the water as if you drank the water. Okay? That is, they fire when you perform an action or you see someone else perform the same one. Okay? Very important. Now, those neurons happen to be connected directly via neural circuitry to the emotional regions of the brain. Why is that important? Because if you see somebody expressing joy and feeling joy, you can feel their joy because you know what it's like in your body. And if you see someone writhing in pain, you can feel their pain because you know what it's like in your body. Okay? We are biologically set up for empathy. Now, that doesn't mean we all have it equally, because our upbringing can either increase our empathy or decrease it and so on. But we are biologically set up for empathy. Now, what that means is that a fair amount of our reason is about connecting empathetically with other people and cooperating with them. That is, it's not just about self-interest. So, why does any of this matter for politics? Why does it matter that our reason is largely unconscious, that it necessarily involves emotion, that it doesn't just directly fit the world, it goes through narratives, frames, metaphors, that it isn't abstract, that it's physical, and that it's as much about, about empathy as about self-interest. Why should that matter? Well, you're going to see it matters almost everywhere in politics. Um, let's take the case of framing. Uh, what I've written about in previous books, in Don't Think of an Elephant, for example, is that uh, political issues are always framed. And in the past 30 years in this country, the right wing has figured out how to frame most political issues in its way. Not because they're superior cognitive scientists, but because they know marketing very well. They have marketed their major ideas extremely well. Ideas like what the market itself is. Ideas like what government is, what taxation is, what uh, national security is, what responsibility is, and so on. Those are ideas that have been out there and repeated over and over in appropriate language for 30 to 40 years. Now, what happens when a language expressing an idea is repeated? Every word activates a frame, the frame is physical, the synapses get stronger and stronger and stronger, they're in your brain. Basically, 
you change minds by changing brains. You can't learn anything new without your brain changing. You can't change anyone's mind without changing their brains. But simply repeating language can change the brains of the people who are listening. That's important to know. Very important to understand that. Now, what conservatives have done that's remarkable in the last 35 or 40 years is that they have set up institutions to do this. They have think tanks that, uh, you know, get their ideas out there in public over and over again, day after day, uh, uh, applying basic conservative ideas to every issue. And they have their experts out there talking about it and writing articles and so on all the time. They have training institutes to train conservative leaders to think and talk in this way. And um, they have trained tens of thousands of conservative leaders. Uh, there are booking agencies that book the experts in various areas, conservative experts, on radio and TV around the country. So 80% of the talking heads on TV turn out to be conservatives, by a conservative estimate. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and... Uh, the, uh, the result of this is that you get these ideas repeated and repeated until they, become, they come to seem normal. Now, what happens if you actually believe in the 18th century view of the mind? What happens if you believe that reason just fits the world and that language is therefore neutral and applies to the world? It says that the language that activates conservative frames, it's just neutral, it's normal language. Well, who was taught this? Who was taught that, that um, you know, uh, the 18th century view of the mind? Journalists. Now, this is serious. Uh, I occasionally lecture in, to graduate students in the journalism school at my university, and when I go in there, I will start giving a talk like this, and within 15 minutes, somebody will raise their hand and say, uh, that's the opposite of what we're being taught. We're being taught to report objectively who, what, when, where, you know, and just use the, the language that's in common usage. And the language that's in common usage may have gotten there because of conservative framing and conservative think tanks and conservative institutions. So it's very important that this is not neutral language. But then it turns out that progressives have not done the same thing. And why have they not done the same thing? One reason is that an awful lot of progressives believe in the 18th century view of the mind. They believe in enlightenment reason. That is, they believe if you just tell people the facts, they'll reason to the right conclusion. And that, moreover, uh, to try to, f to tell people that they should frame things in terms of their beliefs is manipulation. They see framing as simply trying to manipulate people. And if you believed in the 18th century view of the mind, of course you would believe that, because you think that reason should just fit the world in itself. Well, you shouldn't have to frame anything. Framing is just been in manipulation. But it's not. Framing is the most ordinary use of language there is. It can be used fraudulently to spin issues. And it can be used um, honestly by honest people. So the question is, are you framing issues in an effective way? And it's not just issue by issue. 
people ask me all the time, ah, I'm working on such and such uh, a problem. You know, how can I frame it better? How can I frame energy better? How can I frame this better? Can you give me a slogan? The answer is no, I can't give you a slogan because you have to get out a whole system of thought and a system of language, not just individual slogans. And this takes time and it takes institutions and it takes people figuring out what the most effective way to do this is. The marketers have done it on the other side. But marketing to uh, somebody who believes in enlightenment reason seems illegitimate. Marketing to so many liberals and Democrats seems like a terrible thing to do. But of course, it's done all the time by marketers and it's done by Republicans. Now, this is important to know. Marketing is not necessarily underhanded. I'm not saying that it's underhanded. It changes brains. Now, there's a very important thing to realize about changing brains versus changing minds. The term changing minds evokes a frame of rational argument. The idea is I'm going to change your mind by, by showing by superior argument that I'm right. Whereas changing brains has a sort of Transylvanian feel. You know, you're with Dr. Frankenstein, and the brain is cut open, and uh, the, guy, the hunchback has got another brain in his bucket here. You know, it's, right? We're going to change brains, right? right? It doesn't work that way. Simply by talking and repeating something over and over, you change brains. You can't learn anything without the synapses in your brain changing. It's a basic fact. And it's important to know, and it's unconscious. Most brain change is unconscious. Another important thing to remember. You're listening to George Lakoff. Today's show, The Political Mind. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, um, let's talk a bit about political ideologies and the way that people think politically. And I want to talk not just about uh, conservative modes of thought and progressive modes of thought, but what I'll call neoliberal modes of thought. Uh, And I don't want to talk about conservatives and liberals, per se, not just about the people, because people are more complicated than that. So let me uh, start by talking about the complication before we get into the details. Uh, There are a lot of people who have both conservative and progressive modes of thought. In fact, most of us do because we're raised in this country. You're exposed to both and you learn both. Now, you may be progressive in every part of your waking, active life, but if you can walk into an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie and understand it, you have a kind of conservative, strict father mode of thought, uh, whether you like it or not. If you don't walk out of the theater saying, what was that about? If you actually get it, then you have the appropriate mode of thought, if only for understanding movies. But there are a lot of people who are conservative in one area of their life and progressive in another. There are people who are conservative about foreign policy and progressive about domestic policy, or the reverse. There are people who are conservative on their economic policy and progressive on their social policy, or the reverse. All kinds of combinations exist. Now, uh, let me give you an example. Compare Chuck Hagel and Joe Lieberman. Chuck Hagel is largely a conservative, but he's against the war in in Iraq. Uh, Lieberman is pro-war, but largely liberal. 
They agree on almost nothing. They are both called moderates. <laughs> there is no mode of thought that is moderate. A moderate is someone who has partly one and partly the other in all kinds of possible combinations. There is no left to right scale from left to right where there's a moderate in the middle with a mode of thought that's moderate. doesn't exist. The idea of moving to the right to get more votes is pointless. It's not how this works in terms of linear scales. Now, uh, it's important to know this if you're in office. And if the issue comes up, you know, you need to know how to talk to people who are partly progressive and partly conservative, but may not know it. And this is important. You may not know, you may identify as a conservative and not know that you have lots of progressive views, or identify as a progressive and may not be aware that you have conservative views. And this is quite normal, and it's normal for the following reason. There is structure in the brain called mutual inhibition. For example, it says if you have two neural circuits which are incompatible, which can't both be firing at once, each can inhibit the other. The firing of one may turn off the other and conversely. But they may be about different things, two different modes of thought about different things. Now, this is absolutely normal. Forget about politics for a minute. Consider somebody who goes carousing on Saturday night and goes to church on Sunday morning and doesn't even notice that there's a contradiction. Right? I, I'm sure some of you have met such people. It's normal. You know, mutual inhibition. Uh, this happens all the time, and it happens in politics. Now, one of the things that's important about understanding this for progressives is that there are some regularities about it. There are, throughout the Midwest and Far West, a lot of people who call themselves conservatives, identify themselves as conservatives, but have liberal views in certain consistent areas. For example, most people who call themselves conservatives love the land as much as any environmentalist. Now, they may not use the language of environmentalists. They may not talk about wetlands, but swamps instead. But they love the land. They like to hunt. They like to fish. They would like to be able to eat the fish they catch, but in 48 states you can't. But still, they love the land. Uh, there are plenty of people who identify as conservatives, but are basically progressive business people. What is a progressive business person? It's somebody who is honest in his business, who would never mistreat employees or pay them too little, but pays them what they're worth, and who would never mistreat the public, who would never try to harm the public. Basically a progressive business position. There are uh, plenty of people who want to live in progressive communities. What's a progressive community? It's a community where there are people who care about each other, where there are officials who care about the people in the community and act responsibly on that care, okay? where social responsibility is normal. Okay? Lots of conservatives want to live in progressive communities. And by the way, you see this, uh, for example, in those pictures uh, from Iowa, the Iowa floods. We have all these guys taking the sandbags and building these walls against the floods for the guys downstream not even for themselves or their neighbors, but for other people, where they care about them. Right? And they're very often conservatives. Right? So what you have are lots of such folks, and then you have people who are conservative 
call themselves conservatives, but are actually liberal Christians. What is a liberal Christian? A liberal Christian is one who uh, believes that God is a kind of nurturing parent, who believes that you should forgive other people, that you should turn the other cheek, that you should care for the poor, care for the sick, uh, be good stewards of the environment. Those positions are progressive positions. Right? There are plenty of Christians in America who are progressive Christians in that sense, but who might call themselves conservatives because they have truly conservative views on certain other issues and identify with those views. Now, what does it mean to be a conservative? The word conservative doesn't express modern conservatism at all, which is a kind of radical position. Uh, conservative says, literally, we're conserving the best things of the past. That is not what you know the Bush administration has been doing. They've been actually changing a lot of stuff and changing it quite radically. Now, how do you account for what is going on in conservative and progressive thought? I first got into this problem in 1992. In 1992, I watched the Republican National Convention out of a sense of civic duty. I have a great deal of civic duty. And I particularly wanted to see Dan Quayle's acceptance speech. <laughs> and the reason was it was written by William Crystal, who I know is a very, very smart guy. Uh, so I'm sitting in my living room listening to Dan Quayle's acceptance speech, and I realize that I do not understand Dan Quayle. I understand every word he says, every sentence, but I had no idea how the sentences fit together. And this is very embarrassing for a professional linguist <laughs> and a cognitive scientist. So I say, okay, I'm going to remember a case that I do not understand. It was Dan Quayle's argument against the progressive income tax. It was a one-sentence argument, and it went like this. Why should the best people be punished? Everybody there cheered and waved their signs. <laughs> All right? I'm sitting there saying, duh. <laughs> Why is this an argument against the progressive income tax? I don't get it. Okay? But I'll remember it. I'm a linguist. This, we remember data. All right. All right. 1994 comes around, and out of um, civic duty, I dutifully go down to my independent bookstore and buy a copy of The Contract with America. And I'm reading through this, and it occurs to me that conservatives are very strange people. So I say, okay, here's why. I had just written a book on uh, categorization called Women, Fire, and Dangerous Things. And um, I couldn't understand the category conservative. For example, I couldn't for the life of me figure out why the same people who were against abortion were for the flat tax. I didn't see the relationship between abortion and the flat tax. Or why the people for the flat tax should be in favor of owning guns, including machine guns. I just didn't see the connection. I didn't see the connection between owning guns and tort reform. And I also didn't see the connection between tort reform and being against environmental regulations. I mean, the whole thing just didn't make any sense to me. So I said, okay, I have the opposite views on all of these. What unites my position? Nothing. I didn't get it. I had no idea. I became terminally embarrassed. But I realized that this is a problem in my field. It's a cognitive science problem, a problem of how ideas fit together. 
So I decided to do research. I went and I started interviewing people. I uh, decided to just collect as many uh, arguments on both sides as I could to see what the structure of the, of the reasoning was. You're listening to George Lakoff. Today's show, The Political Mind. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. I did all sorts of research on this problem and got nowhere until I asked a different question, which was, why do conservatives talk about family value? And then I realized that one of my students had written a paper showing that we all have a metaphor of the nation as family. Every seven-year-old knows that George Washington is the father of his country and does not confuse him with daddy. No problem. We have founding fathers. We send our sons and daughters to war. We have homeland security. We don't want missiles in our backyard, etc. And it's not just here. You, know, you have it in uh, Mother India, Mother Russia, the fatherland, and so on. You know, the idea is the nation is a family. Now, uh, since then, it, it turns out that the actual metaphor is more general than that, and it arises very naturally in the same way as more is up arises. And it's, it's very simple to see why. What is your first experience with governance? When were you first governed? In your family. Your parents governed you. Okay? So you have an experience of being governed, and you have an experience of your parents in two different parts of your brain. And you're going to learn a metaphor that a governing institution is a family. And it can apply to kindergarten. It can apply to... Uh, church, where you have the Holy Father, it can apply to, to governments and nations and so on. So, and it can apply to all sorts of other things. Any kind of governing institution can be seen as a family, and the question is what kind of family? Well, in America, it turns out that if we look at our two different forms of politics and we say, okay, here are two different ways the nation works, uh, do they arise from this family metaphor that's inevitable? Well, let's work backwards. Start with the way the nation works and ask what kinds of families would give rise to it. And the answer is a strict father family and a nurturing parent family. And you can describe them quite precisely, apply the metaphors, and get two different modes of thought. So let's start with the strict father family, which it turns out is actually taught very clearly by James Dobson and other right-wing family specialists. Uh, That is, it goes like this. Why do you need a strict father? You need a strict father to protect the family, and mommy can't do that. There's evil in the world. He's got to protect the family from evil. You need a strict father. Why? Because he's got to win those competitions in the world to support the family, and mommy can't do that. So this is a, a form of family model with a daddy and a mommy, not two gay parents. You need a strict father because kids are born bad. What does that mean? It means they, they just do what they want to do. They don't know right from wrong. It's assumed there's an absolute right and wrong, and the good strict father knows right from wrong. His job is to teach his kids right from wrong, and there's only one way to do it, punishing them when they do wrong. And Dobson's clear on this. He says, you know, you've got to punish the kids when they do wrong. It's your job to do that. It's a, a show of love. However, he's fairly liberal on this. He says uh, that you should never hit a kid below the age of 15 months. 
Now, the idea here is that, and, but he says the punishment has to be painful enough so that the child will, will try to avoid the pain by learning to do the right things, by learning morality. That if they learn the discipline to be moral, then that's the only way they become moral beings. Okay? And if they learn that discipline, there's a wonderful secondary effect. They can go out in this land of opportunity and become prosperous using their discipline. Okay? And what follows from that? Suppose you're not prosperous. It means you're not disciplined enough to be prosperous. That means you can't be moral, so you deserve your poverty. What does it say about social programs? It says social programs give people things they have not earned. Okay? If you give someone something they haven't earned, it takes away their discipline. If it takes away their discipline, they can't be moral, so it's immoral. Social programs are doubly immoral. It takes away the discipline to be able to uh, earn a living and the discipline to be a moral being. Okay? Have you heard this argument before? Okay. Notice it is coming directly out of a strict father model of the family applied to politics via metaphor. Because metaphor preserves the inference of the source domain. That's how metaphor works. It takes the inference of one domain and applies it to the, the inferences in the other domain. Okay? That's, that's the, the nature of metaphorical thought. Okay? Now one more thing. In a strict father family, uh, who is the decider? The strict father. He decides. Right? <laughs> now, Let's apply this metaphor of a governing institution as a family to various institutions. Let's start with religion. Right? What is fundamentalist Christianity about? What is God? God is a strict father. God says, here are my commandments. You follow them, you go to heaven. If not, you go to hell. Well, I'll give you a second chance. Now, if you follow them, you go to heaven. If not, you go to hell. Right? That is, punishment is required. Right? Straight, strict father morality for that kind of God. If you have, we'll talk about, and the nurture and parent God says something very different, which we'll get to in a minute. Apply it to the market. Right? So let's say the market is a strict father. What does that mean? It means the market is a natural, be moral, and it rewards market discipline and punishes lack of market discipline, right? So that it rewards the people who have fiscal discipline and punishes those who don't, makes them poor, right? What does that say about the market? It says there should be no authority above the market because there's no authority higher than the strict father who knows right from wrong, right, and is moral and natural. So what does that say about our government? It says all things that are higher than the market are interfering with the market. For example, there are four things. Regulation, taxation, uh, worker rights and unions, and tort cases. All the things that conservatives want to get rid of. That is, it's very simple. If you see the, the market as a strict father imposing market discipline and rewarding and punishing accordingly then naturally you will want to get rid of all those things. Yeah? Straight conservative application of strict father morality. Uh, in government, it says, 
the president is the decider. If the president is a moral strict father, that is, if it's a conservative president. Right? If it's not a conservative president, he's not an appropriately moral strict father. Um, in foreign policy, it's America who is the decider, who should be deciding what other people in the world should be doing because we're the most moral people in the world and the most powerful people, and we should use our power for morality. Same sort of thing. Basically, that's conservative thought. Now, not all conservatives think of that way about all positions because there is biconceptualism. How does a nurturing parent model work? It says the job of a nurturing parent is to nurture their children and to raise their children to be nurturers of others. Nurturance is two things. Empathy. You care about your children. You identify with them. You know what all those screams mean. And it is responsibility. It's your responsibility to protect and empower your children. That's your job. Right? Now, um, what does that mean about government? It says that we as citizens form a democracy because we are here to care about each other. And the instrument of that care is the government. And the government has two moral missions, to protect and empower citizens. That's what government is about from a progressive point of view. And notice that protection is not just military or police protection. It is worker protection, environmental protection, safety nets, all of those things. Uh, should be health care. And empowerment is not just providing education, but also providing roads, providing um, communication systems, underwriting a banking system, uh, allowing a stock market that works, uh, having courts to decide on contracts and corporate law as well as criminal decisions. In short, you can't earn a dime in this country, not a dime, without the empowerment and protection of the government. Okay? And Warren Buffett said it very well. He said, if you had dropped me in Bangladesh 30 years ago, I'd still be impoverished because they had no banking system and no stock market. Okay? What are taxes? They're what you pay to live here rather than in Bangladesh. Right? That's what taxes are about. They're what you pay for the protection and empowerment of the government. And the more you get out of that, the more you should be paying. That's what, you know, what progressive taxation is about. Now, that view is a progressive view, and it's never said out loud. You know, I talk to many progressive audiences. Everybody always says, yeah, yeah that's what taxation's about, sure. But no political leaders ever say it. Nobody comes out and says it as part of an argument about why we should have this kind of program or that kind of program. They don't talk about the moral mission of the government in terms of protection and empowerment, but it's there. What I'm suggesting is this. We need to look at the way people really reason. We need to look at real reason. Why? Because we need a new enlightenment. And what would that new enlightenment be like? It would start with a very important idea. And that is that empathy is the basis of our democracy. And this is an extremely important idea. Uh, it's especially been worked out by Lynn Hunt, who's a historian of uh, the 18th century, 
and the 17th century. Uh, Lynn Hunt is at UCLA. She's written an important book called Inventing Human Rights. And she looked at the Declaration of Independence. And she said, gee, it says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, etc. You all know the rest of that. And she said, when did they become self-evident? Let's look at the texts. Let's see if we can find out. That's her business. She's a historian. So let's start with Descartes and go back to the 1650s. You know, did it really come from the Enlightenment? Nope. 1650, not self-evident. 1700, not self-evident. Nothing there. 1725, sorry. 1750, it's beginning to get in there. How? Through novels, dramas, paintings, drawings of poor people oppressed by more powerful people, which arouse empathy. And it's through that that you get the idea that poor people are the same as other people and deserve their empathy. And from that you get the notion that we are all created equal, that we are endowed by our creators with certain inalienable rights. Right? That's where that comes from. Our democracy is built on the idea of empathy. And carrying out that empathy is what laws do. What our Constitution is, is a way to carry out that empathy and to define a moral mission for our government. That's what this is about. To understand real reason, not enlightenment reason, but real reason is to understand that. In addition to that, it says that uh, there's another very interesting result from neuroscience. In addition to mirror neurons, we also have things called canonical neurons. These are neurons that fire when we either perform an action or see something we can perform it on. They link us to the physical world. They link us to our environment, to our physical environment. In a new enlightenment, we would have trained people to enhance that capacity, to understand the physical world and to feel it, to connect with it in a way we're not now training people to do because it's an important part of our survival. It's an important part of understanding the earth. And we would train people to increase empathy so that we could understand each other better. Right? This is part of what a new enlightenment is about. It is why it is important to understand that old enlightenment reason is false. It's empirically false. The science is against it. And notice there's something I'm doing in this book which is tricky. Uh, the trick is this. Old Enlightenment reason said that we should be in favor of science because it fits logic and rationality. But the science shows that the old notion of rationality isn't rational. It's not real rationality. And that real rationality says that science itself is somewhat different. Science is based on metaphor. Science is based on metaphorical thought. Science is not just done dispassionately. I've never met a serious scientist who was dispassionate about his science. Right? Yeah. It's extremely important to understand what our thought processes are really like, especially for our politics. Thank you. been listening to George Lakoff from a presentation given in July of 2008 in Austin, Texas. 
Today's show has been The Political Mind. George Lakoff is currently professor of cognitive science and linguistics at the University of California at Berkeley and is a founding senior fellow at the Rockridge Institute. His most recent book is The Political Mind, Why You Can't Understand 21st Century Politics with an 18th Century Brain. He is also author of Don't Think of an Elephant, Know Your Values and Frame the Debate, Moral Politics, How Liberals and Conservatives Think, co-author of Philosophy in the Flesh, The Embodied Mind and Its Challenge to Western Thought, and Where Mathematics Comes From. For more information, visit www.rockridgeinstitute.org and search George Lakoff. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. Our engineer is Bonnie Bone. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Our website, www.gunsandbutter.net, is under reconstruction. Trying to steal your life, you know what I'm saying?